You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now, your hosts, Scott, Miles, and M. Your table is ready. Live long and prosper. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Ladies and gentlemen, before J.J. Abrams took it upon himself to bravely cast Dune and younger actors to play our heroes from Star Trek The Original Series, a collective of, a collective of actors and writers have been trekking across the stars with Star Trek Phase 2. Their straight-to-internet show has been feeding for, hung- feeding for hungry Star Trek fans wanting more live-action original series era Trek. One of the first Star Trek fan companies to give us more live-action Star Trek, they are a pioneer of the fan film community, and yet they also lead the way to give us something just as good and enjoyable as anything Hollywood would put out. Tonight, we are happy to have on uh, James Cauley, the founder and executive producer, and who also played Captain Kirk, for Star Trek Phase 2, as well as some of his team. We also have on first assistant director, Dennis Hodson, and second assistant director, uh, Jamie Sanchez. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. And we do have Dennis. Is Dennis on there? Dennis. Is on. Oh, you do have that. Mm-hmm. But, oh, so we do have all three on. Very good. Yeah, well, welcome, for, welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner. Yeah, happy to talk to you guys. Yeah, yeah great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Jim, yeah, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. James, let's let's start with you. James, can you tell us a little about the history of Star Trek Phase 2 and uh, what first inspired you to make your own Star Trek productions? Well, uh, this is probably the most um, uh, asked question that I've answered over the last uh, 11 or 12 years. I um, started watching the original series as a child and playing Captain Kirk with friends in the backyard and so this is just an extension of that. Um, it just has better toys. <laughs> so, you know, I've always been fascinated with it. I've always been fascinated with movie making. And um, it was just a way to, you know, try to occupy my free time. Uh, I toured the country as uh, Elvis. Uh, that's my day job. And I do have a lot of downtime uh, from the gigs. And so I wanted to, to be able to focus uh, you know, my downtime on something that I would really enjoy, and, and I just zeroed in on, on wanting to play Star Trek, so I'm still playing Star Trek. <laughs> Isn't it awesome that you're able to play with toys and play like Captain Kirk as an adult? That's awesome. <laughs> well, it was. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, <laughs> you know, being in front of the camera is very, very tricky. Um, a lot of people have, have opinions, strong opinions about that character, and uh, uh, some people are very, very caustic, and uh, I just got to a point where some of it was just too extreme and, and directed at me very personally, so I just walked away from that part of it, and I've never been happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that, definitely. James, your connection to Star Trek is not only with Phase 2, but you have another connection um can, can you please tell us uh, what that was? Well, I was friends with William Mortice. I stuck up a friendship with him uh, when I first got out of uh, high school in 1985. Um, corresponded with him quite a bit over the phone. Uh, ended up flying to Los Angeles. Um, I did some spec work for him. 
Uh, I did a bunch of freelance stuff for him and worked on the uh, first season of Star Trek, The Next Generation. Um, had a great time, great relationship with the man. He uh, unfortunately passed away, um, uh, and when he did, he left me a lot of things, left me a lot of uh, stuff from the original series that, uh, that he had collected. I ended up with his copies of all his personal blueprints um, you know, as a department head that he received, and several of his original sketches and you know, things like that. So he basically you know, gave me the tools to launch Phase 2 without ever knowing that he'd given me any kind of tools to launch Phase 2. So um, uh, he, was a, he was a mad genius. Um, he was a workaholic. He was an amazing guy. Um, he could take a placemat and make, uh, you know, a costume out of it. Uh, I don't really have the words to tell you how great he was. A uh, very, very uh, a big part of uh, Star Trek's success, in my opinion, and, and one of the unsung heroes of the show. Awesome, awesome. Now, you, you, you are, you've entertained, for many Star Trek fans, you've entertained them through Phase 2 films, but you're in the entertainment business yourself, and I think you kind of hinted at this just a little bit earlier. Can you tell us what you do in the entertainment business beyond this sort of stuff? Well, I, you know, I tour in a live show called The King in Concert. Um, I, I play Elvis, you know. Uh, with a live band, I've toured with Elvis's backup singers and some of his bandmates. I've worked with Legends in Concert. I've worked with Hollywood superstars. All these, you know, these these um, major shows that have celebrity impersonators. Um, I kind of stumbled into that um, about 26, 27 years ago. Um, I, I met up with a group of people who who uh, you know kind of pushed me in that direction and encouraged me. And um, Elvis has been very good to me. I mean, he's, he's kept me from uh, having to suffer through a nine-to-five job for a long time, and uh, I'm eternally grateful for it. Oh, awesome. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, well, there's nothing like doing what you enjoy doing and having that being called a job. That's yeah. absolutely fantastic. I, I really do. <laughs> I really do enjoy being on stage in front of a live audience. Um, there's a... There's a connection that you have with people when you're on stage. There's an energy that you cannot get if you're behind a camera. Um, and, uh, you know, you feed off from that. Uh, and the public, if they like what you're doing, you know, they, they really they really pick you up. And uh, I, you know, Elvis fans are a lot like Star Trek fans in many ways. Um, you know, they're very, very rabid and they're very protective, um, you know, of their, of their, their interests and... Uh, the the big difference is they're not as critical and they are not uh, they are not as vocal about certain things, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in a lot of ways they are similar. Um, uh, but two different animals uh, on opposite ends of the spectrum in some ways, the live and then the filming. So, so be, before we go away from this Elvis, can we see like video of you as Elvis on like YouTube? Oh, I know there's pieces of stuff that I've done over the years out there, but there's nothing of the uh, of the major shows that I do with with uh, you know the orchestras and the full bands and all that stuff because because they they are really protective of it. They want you to pay and come see the show. So the stuff that has been videoed is only for like corporate people to sell the show. So unless you've come to an amusement park and somebody has seen my smaller show and, and taped something themselves, you really can't see anything. <laughs> okay. And I'm really grateful for that. Oh yeah. Uh, not that I, not that I don't want people to see me that way, but it's just it's just so much cooler when they plunk down their money and they come into the theater and they expect to see this, you know, 250 pound overweight guy poured in the jumpsuit and they get the Elvis that they weren't expecting. So I've always taken pride in that. Awesome. 
I've oh. seen some of those samples of it, James. I think you do great as you know if your Elvis show is great, and hopefully, like I could see one someday. Yeah. Well, thank you. I would. I, I spent I my thirty second birthday at Graceland. <laughs> I love Elvis. I'm crazy <laughs> for Elvis. I have his. My mom. Yeah. The, my mom's not American, and her the first, the second album she bought when she came to America was um, was an Elvis album, and I still have it. <laughs> Elvis is a pretty unique uh, institution in this country, and uh, a lot of people, you know, still follow him, still have this undying love for him. He he really is a, a, the epitome of the American dream. You know, this very poor young man who was able to make it big, who never forgot where he came from, and always, no matter what his personal problems were, always treated people with respect and always gave more than he got. And and that and he is why he's country. so wonderful. Yeah. He served Absolutely. his country, too. He wasn't just some YouTube, you know, schmuck who runs around oh. with his trousers down by his bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Bieber. I mean, no, not no, only did he have talent, but he had integrity. Yeah, he was a true American. He really was. And, and uh, you know, he's he's such an institution. You know, here we are all these years after his death, and... You know, the, the age range of people from my show is 8 to 85, and I just don't see, you know, the power of Elvis Presley ever going away. He makes more money now than when he was actually walking on the on the planet. So uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And he deserves it. You know, he it's, had a lot of personal problems, let's face it, but who cares? He gave the world so much of himself with his music and his films, and that's, that's the important thing. Yeah. You know, it's it's great that you are into the Elvis thing because I I'm seeing the dichotomy between Elvis and Star Trek, how it uh, how it's something that there's such great fans and it's funny that you're you've got your feet into the Elvis world and you've got your foot deep into the Star Trek world too, because of as you're talking to us about Elvis, I can say you could say the same thing about Star Trek, so that's kind of it's that's what's bouncing around in my head. And given that you've got your phase two, isn't just the only thing you've done with Star Trek. What else is on your Star Trek resume? Well, you know, I did, I did uh, Next Generation, and then um, I uh, was, uh, I had a little bit part in the J.J. Abrams film when that came out, um, which was a lot of fun. J.J. was terrific, and the cast of that movie was terrific. I just wasn't a big fan of the, of the story and the, and the fact that. You know, everything was rebooted and changed. Uh, I was pretty vocal about it uh, <laughs> at the time. Um, but I tried to keep it professional. You know, it's, it's one thing, you know, you can't blame people like J.J. Abrams for doing their job. He was hired to do a specific thing, which he did. He was hired to make Star Trek more accessible to the mainstream audience, and he did that. Uh, there, there's no argument about that. I'm just not a fan of it. It's, to me, it's not Star Trek if you have to change it. Um, I think Star Trek has done very, very well for the last 40-plus years. I don't think it needed to be changed. I think they needed to go back to, you know, what was important about it. I think they really needed to tell stories about something important that involves people, specifically those characters that we love. And they've gotten so far away from that, it's ridiculous. Uh, and particularly with the newer films, you know, it's been reduced to good guy versus bad guy, and how much can we blow up and make this look like a Transformers film? Um, but that's what. <laughs> oh, now happened. you've done it. You mentioned Transformers to M. <laughs> yeah. Well, you realize that you, you hit a hot button with me, sir. These movies are yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
these movies are being made to be to be sold more overseas to the overseas market than they are to the American market. They make tons of money overseas, and the more they blow up, and and the more spectacle it is, the less of a language barrier there is. So the more tickets they're going to sell, and and I always say that they're going to sell tickets in America because they're made for the PlayStation generation. Uh, kids today have a short attention span. They want things to blow up and they want them to move and. That's just the way it is, you know. I, I mean, the generation that we had growing up with Star Trek certainly is is uh, is not the way things are today. Um, I don't know too many kids that are interested in the original series. Sadly. Yeah. It. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. I know that I, my brother and I introduced my nephews to Star Trek, starting with the original series, and they they easily recognize. Some of the some of the actors they've seen William Shatner on Priceline. They go, oh my God, Captain Kirk, and they they do have. There's a lot of little kids out there. When I go to cons, I do see kids in the old school in original series costumes, and they know who they are. You just it's it's there. It's it's a little bit. I agree. It's it's when they've done the reboot. It's a little it's a little less cerebral, a little less science, a little less adventure, a little more bang zoom, but not as bad as. Those you know Transformer fan fictions, fan films that have been made recently. Um, but going like when you find those younger fans, they're gonna. Oh, go ahead. That that's nice to hear because I don't I don't have a lot of contact with 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 children, number one. But but um, you know I think back to to when I was a kid, Star Trek was on you know three and four times a day on two or three different channels. It, it was mm-hmm. it was endlessly rerun, and today, you know, what is it on Me TV? I really, you know, other than that, I can't think of any time that it's on, and it's only on like once a week. So if you don't have Blu-rays or DVDs or whatever, it's really not in your face like it used to be. I do know that that the the marketing of it is pretty good. The the the, the action figures and the toys. That stuff seems to be doing well, but I don't know if it's because people my age are buying it or because kids are buying it or whether it's a combination of both. So, It's got to be a combination I, of both, I, and the fans are definitely out there. And once I point my nephews to your shows, they're going to see a lot of amazing, familiar faces from, from, from Star Trek past, aren't they? That's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> like, who, who, can, think... who, who can our listeners see? Well, they can see George Takei. Uh, he came back and, and reprised the role of Sulu. They can see Walter Koenig. He came back and played Chekhov for us. Uh, Barbara Luna mm-hmm. came back. Um, God help me, help me, Fez. Uh, William Wyndham was Enemy, there. And, uh, um, in harm's way, and then again in Enemy Starfleet. Right. That's amazing. And David Gerald is still with us. DC Fontana is writing a new script for us, so... You got some good people uh, helping you. The show was basically starting over from ground zero. Uh, we've recently moved into a new 13,000 square foot facility. We've been meticulously rebuilding everything the way it was back in the 1960s on the Desert Loop Paramount lot. Uh, I've taken extreme pains and pride in making sure that not one thing is out of place. Um, I'm a stickler for that. I, I know that there are other shows trying to do what we do now and, um, God bless them. You know they're doing their thing, and uh, I'm happy for them. But when I look at some of their product, I see this is wrong and that's wrong. It drives me crazy. So <laughs> I want to make sure that nobody can look at my show and say those things. <laughs> so you're you're a little bit OCD when it comes to sets. 
Not a little bit. Very much. And I'll tell you why. Because I feel in my heart that the Enterprise is as much a character as Kirk and Spock and the rest of them. We've lived with that, that ship for 40-plus years now, and if something is wrong, your eye will immediately go to what's wrong, not what's right. So you have to walk this... this this, this tightrope and make sure that you get everything as close as you possibly can. Well, and you don't want to, you don't want people that are watching to be distracted by some minute detail that's out of place. And I mean, that's the 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 the, the art of this is to try and make the enterprise seem like I, I want to say invisible, but that's not. I don't mean that people don't see the enterprise, but they aren't being distracted by the enterprise. Right. You want them to be comfortable with the, with the surroundings. Yeah, absolutely. Is the way I look at it. Yeah. Now you uh, and believe me, if it's wrong. People will notice. Oh, they and they'll let you know, and they'll let you know. <laughs> they'll let you know. Yeah, uh, Miles. Vociferously, yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, my next question is for for Dennis and Jamie. Um, what was it like for you the first time you saw the sets of the Enterprise? I mean, for me, that's my dream to see to see the original sets, even if it's a replica. I mean, knowing you guys, I'm sure it's. You know, you, 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 as, as, as James has said, I mean, he's going to painstaking detail to make them look look original. But what was it? What was it like for you guys? Yeah, first, so I'll let you answer the question first. Um, I, 2009, Katumba, uh, the very first day, I got to go onto the bridge, and I, I, James was there, and he, we were hanging space lights. I'm like, holy, <laughs> I'm on the bridge of the Enterprise. <laughs> And then James comes up from behind me and goes, "Judicious Fez, what editing will come up in this podcast?" (laughs) Yeah, it's like Fez. I need you to make sure that nothing hits my chair. So I got to touch the chair on the very first day. That was kind of surreal. That is surreal. That's awesome, Danny. Tess, what was it like for you, sir? Well, I came, I came a few years after after Jamie did in in twenty twelve. Um, we were shooting um, to meet one of the producers, Andrew Grieve, and he brought me to the sets, and it was, it was all dark, and so I went, hmm, but it's just a set. And then James came in, and I met him, and he based, and said, can you paint? And I said, well, we'll find out. And I guess I was good enough because he let me continue. But at the end of that day, he, he booted me out, and the, and the writer, Rick Chambers, showed up. So he lit the whole set and got all the monitors going and got all the sound effects and through the turbo. And then I had a similar experience that Jamie had, but you won't have to edit my, uh, my language. It was, it was just like being on the Enterprise. And uh, James was really gracious about letting us all uh, in the chair for a few minutes. And, and and look out over just in, incredible sets and sounds and I will I will never ever forget that moment and, and I'm forever grateful to James for for doing that for us so so Jamie you're you're a second assistant director now but you didn't start there please tell us how long you've been with Star Trek phase two and and how you got your start uh, I started in 2009 on Katumba as a grip um, and every year since I've been back, I've had a new job. Uh, during the origin shoot, I was a production assistant. Um, 
during the first filming of Mind Zipper, I was script supervisor and first AD, then Bread and Savagery. I was back to a production assistant. Uh, holiest thing, I was assistant to the producers, and uh, finally, uh, second assistant director for the second filming of Mind Sifter, among the many other things that I helped James with during shoots and stuff. And as a second assistant director, um, my job is to help schedule the shoot, which I helped Dennis with before the shoot and after we got there. And um, basically making sure that all the actors are, are comfortable and stuff. Awesome. Well, you, you, you guys were on like a real movie set. All right, so I want to talk to you, Dennis. Uh, when I know you kind of mentioned this real briefly, but when did you work, start your work with Star Trek Phase Two? Maybe tell us a little bit about how you kind of got roped into working with these characters, and um, and and uh, tell us a little bit about your role as uh, first assistant director. Well, first of all, I roped them into letting me come out. So oh, okay. Was, <laughs> so, you, so, no, so you bribed there was them. No roping me in. <laughs> I uh, they put out a call for um, for volunteers, and I emailed James and Purdue, like Rob Morrow and Andrew Grebe, and and basically pestered them until they thought, okay, this Canadian isn't going away. So um, they <laughs> they invited they they invited me out. Um, you know, to the first shoot, and I was a production assistant. And uh, Mark Burchett, who was directing the episode, who we just lost last week, um, a great friend and mentor to all of us, um, I went up and asked him, can I be close to the action? And he graciously let me operate the slate, and um, and I helped the first AD at the, at the time, Glenn. So... There was a, a following shoot in November of that year, and, and James asked me, said, you know, do you want to be my first AD? And and ever since then, you know, I've been doing it, and hopefully I keep getting better at it as, as we go. Awesome. Awesome. And so you've been, uh, that's been kind of your role ever since? Awesome. Yeah, I did. Um, I did. I was first AD in, in um, June 2013, and in, in this last episode, Mind Sifter, that we just, uh, that we just shot last June. Hmm. Oh, very cool. I know uh, I'm looking at question eight here. Uh, I'm going to ask this question. I know, James, you kind of hinted at this already. Um, you, you stepped down from Captain Kirk. You mentioned earlier that it was there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure in the role. Everyone has their own opinions. I mean, all you had to do was watch the newest incarnation of Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams Trek, to hear people's opinions and what they thought of Kirk and the good, the bad, the ugly um people sharing their thoughts quite candidly the positive negative you were in this role and obviously felt some of the same thing here um and i, I you kind of mentioned earlier this is some of the reasons that you kind of stepped away from just the pressure of that role uh how does it feel to have someone else stepping into that role well i you know it was the best decision that i ever made for me and for my show, uh, I I was uh, first of all I, I started the show because I wanted to play Captain Kirk. What I didn't expect was the venom uh, and the the absolute bitterness and hatred from from certain circles. Uh, and it just got to the point where I kept you know questioning why am I even doing this at this point. <laughs> um, 
it really, I mean, it, it, it got really nasty in certain quarters, and, and, it, and it was, uh, you know, strange. And there were some people that were like, oh, you're doing it too much like Shatner. And I, you know, and I thought, where are they getting that from? I mean, there's been two or three instances, you know, with one line of dialogue over 11 years where a director said, now, in order for this line to work, James, you have to deliver it like Shatner. And I would do it. But for the most part, I just approached it as, you know, uh, this go get them guy. I never, you know, had the pregnant pauses to my speech or any of that kind of thing. And I, and I felt that in order to help carry, carry the part, that I ought to have his swagger when he walked. So beyond that, you know, I tried to do my own thing. I never, I never set out to imitate Shatner because, believe me, as an impersonator, if I want to imitate you, I probably could do it. <laughs> um, but I, but I walked away from it, and, and I got this terrific actor uh, named Brian Gross, who looks like William Shatner, did quite a bit, you know, in his 30s. And he's a trained actor, and he just is, is such a sweet human being uh, off uh, screen that it, it's just turned out to be this wonderful, wonderful win-win situation. Did that free you? Did that move also kind of free you up to focus on maybe some other areas of phase two that you maybe could still focus on, but maybe couldn't give quite the attention you were looking to give? Absolutely. You know, when you're when you're not only producing a show, but you have to be in front of the camera, somewhere along the way something is going to suffer, either your performance or something else that you should be, you know, focusing your attention on. And it's very, very difficult. And I, I have extreme admiration for anybody, particularly people like Leonard Nimoy, who can direct and, and produce and star in something at the same time. It, it is a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and I have found that, that, you know, now that I don't have to memorize lines, you know, I can turn my, my eye onto other things and make sure that details that I need to be right are right. And uh, I also get to spend much more time with with people that are there either you know participating in the shoot or visiting the set and that's what's important to me i've been able to keep this thing going and i have all of these wonderful people that i get to see year after year after year and and there's new people that that come into it uh year after year and i have this wonderful extended family out there if you will and uh now I get to spend more time with them, and I'm in the trenches with them, and I'm not, you know, separated from them at times because I have to focus on playing a character. So it's, it's again, it's a win-win situation. And I think, I think when the public finally gets to see Brian Gross this fall uh, in a full episode, I think they're going to be pretty uh, pleasantly surprised. So this fall is when we uh, get to see the next episode drop. You do, and I, we were going to release an episode called The Holiest Thing this past February, and we spent a tremendous amount of time on that episode. And when it was uh, delivered to me, I was not quite happy with the uh, transfer that was done. Uh, we shot it in Cinema 4K, um, you know, with the red, red Epic cameras, and... Then they did a what they call a transcode, which which allows them to kind of dumb it down to do the edit. Because as you guys are, are aware, 4K there's a lot of information. It's very hard to work with a file that big. So they they dumbed it down to do the editing, and in in so doing, there was some issues with it, it. Kind of muddied the image, if you get what I'm saying. We lost some of the some of the color and and the saturation and that kind of thing. Fidelity. So. 
Yeah, so I was kind of like, look, I could put this out this way, or I could be, you know, the anal SOB that I am and insist that we that we get it right. So I asked for it to be kind of pulled back. Um, we spent a lot of money, you know, shooting it in 4K, and I wanted to make sure that when the public finally sees it, that they see the way we saw it being shot. So they're doing that now, and and um, it's a great story, but it's a very um, personal kind of story, and. I wanted the public to be able to see Brian Grossing his debut in a very powerful, uh, you know, emotional kind of situation. And so Mindsifter, to me, out of the choices that I have, is the episode for Brian to make his debut as Captain Kirk. It's a beloved story from fandom. Uh, he turned in a powerful, powerful performance. I'm not just saying that. It was an amazing thing to watch. Um, I'm very excited about it, and I'm using Mindsifter as our... Uh, anniversary, if you will. We celebrated our 10th anniversary last year, but we didn't have any kind of release to back it up. So this is going to be a very, very special story. It's actually going to take place earlier in the five-year mission. Uh, we've, we've gone to great lengths to match what you would have seen if it were really 1969 and the way it was shot. We brought in a, a professional DP who actually worked with Jerry Finnerman on Star Trek to light it and shoot it. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, brilliant visual effects people that are actually working on it now to make it look the way I want it to look. Uh, we had an excellent uh, set design crew. They rebuilt the Guardian of Forever from the city on the edge, and uh, it was an amazing thing to stand in front of that and film for you know four days. So we really had a terrific time. That's awesome. I'm I'm very excited for this to come out in fall. Awesome. So with what's coming, what's what new adventures will we see Kirk and his team in? I'm sorry. Could you say that again? Well, with with the new season coming, what kind of what kind of adventures are we going to see Kirk and his team in? <laughs> well, Mindshifter, if you're not familiar with it, Kirk is kidnapped by the Klingons while he's on vacation, and they run him through this device called the Mindshifter, which they talk about in the original episode, Errand of Mercy. And it basically rips his mind apart, and they embed these triggers in him so that if he starts to recover, you know, his memory, if he hears his name, he automatically loses everything again. And uh, the whole thing revolves around the secret of time travel, and the Klingons want it, and they know Starfleet has it. And so they take him to, they take Kirk to the Guardian of Forever, and they try to get him to, again, they try to force Kirk to tell them, how did this thing work? And, and it, it doesn't. And Kirk finally manages to stumble through it and get away from the Klingons. I mean, you don't know what happens to him. And I really don't want to tell you any more than that. <laughs> but it's a great <laughs> story. Um, and then, of course, you're going to see the holiest thing where he actually meets Dr. Carol Marcus for the first time. Wow. Which nice. is pretty cool. Uh, we will she be won't be in her underpants, the... will she? No, no. We won't be doing that. <laughs> uh, they... It is very much the Carol Marcus that people are familiar with. (laughs) (laughs) It's very much the Carol Marcus that people are familiar with from the Wrath of Khan. Good. Good. We We also return to the the Roman planet uh, in an episode (gasps) called Bread and Savagery. So you get to see what happened to the children of the sun and how the planet continues to evolve. Oh, good. That's what's next up on our list. Lots of good stuff to look forward to. Any cool, new, fun cameos? People have blast from the past that we... You could hint at, maybe? Uh, well, not in the first three, but we're actually working on something that's very special coming up, and I'm not ready to, to kind of uh, 
let it out of the closet yet, but it's going to be pretty spectacular. I will tell you that DC Fontana is writing it, and uh, it will feature <sighs> Dr. McCoy's daughter. So let your mind wander nice. from there. Nice. <laughs> Awesome. Wow. Excellent. Oh, that's awesome. No, knowing what you do is a labor of love. Um, you, you, nobody's making any money on it. And you're doing it because you love it. Um, how can our listeners help and support uh, Star Trek Phase 2? Well, first of all, we encourage everybody to come and participate. You know, if you're a Trekkie, we, we actually want you to get on a plane or get into a car or however you want to and get here to help us film. It's, a, it's an experience that you know, I think everybody that's a Star Trek fan should should uh, should participate in. You actually get a feel for what it was like to be on that show or working on that show. And um, you know, if you can't be here, we certainly you know would love any kind of financial contribution people would be willing to make to us. Uh, they can donate through PayPal. We have links on our Facebook and website. Um, it's very expensive. We're looking at about fifty to sixty thousand dollars an episode. So. Yeah, it's crazy, but, but hmm. we're still here and we're still having fun. Wow, wow, it's it's great, and it's great in the fact that you have these episodes planned out. Says at least in some way you have a, a a decent amount of backing and a bunch of people that are already supporting you. And it's just, it, I know that it'd be great just to have more people jumping on board just to help kind of share the load and kind of continue to deliver this great content that you guys have been delivering from the really beginning, really the beginning, the era of fan films. How, uh, well, if somebody had told me, if somebody had told me ten or eleven years ago that I would still be doing this, I would have said, "No, you're crazy. It'll never go that long." And and here we are, all these years later, and we're still doing it. Right. Yeah. And uh, a lot has changed in those ten years, no doubt. Yes, a lot of things have changed. <laughs> um, well, so people want to go and find out more about, you know, Star Trek Phase Two. They want to find out more about the upcoming releases where can they go to watch past episodes where can they go to find out more about star trek phase two other than just supporting you well the most updated information is on our facebook page every day which is star trek new voyages phase two our, our website is out there www.startrekphase2 it's the number two dot com and you, know, you can pretty much get on facebook and interact with everybody the cast and crew answers uh, you know, answers messages and posts and so forth. And uh, you know, basically, we are we are like you. We're just a group of fans, and we're doing this to have a good time and and live out our childhood fantasies. So, <laughs> yeah. And you're also helping keep Star Trek alive. Well, we'd like to think we are. We all are. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Well, we appreciate you taking some time out of your uh, schedule to chat with us here in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, and uh, Dennis, great to have you on, and as, as well as as well as you, Jamie. Well, thanks for having us, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's a great time. And you know, again, as James said, check out our face our our Facebook page, or find us at StarTrekFades2.com. Thank you so much for visiting the Sci-Fi Diner. We hope you enjoyed the food, the service, and the conversations. If you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about, or tell us what you're watching or reading, flip open your communicators and contact us at 1-888-508-4343, or click the SpeakPipe link at sci-fi-diner-podcast.com, or 
send an mp3 or type email to sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com you can also join the conversation on our facebook fan page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner we'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show if you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at sci-fi diner podcast.com amazing <laughs> that's pretty Sorry. cool isn't it that is pretty yeah. cool and, and you've got oh my god you've got eugene rodney shut up holy yeah I'm, I'm gonna lose my crap for a minute let me just mute <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, oh my god i have to do the big gay gasp <gasps> oh my god <laughs> <laughs>